You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 11, given in Berlin on the 21st of December, 1908. We can only ascend to ever higher domains in these meetings here by arranging the courses running parallel to these branch lectures as we have done. I would therefore ask you to take note of these courses as far as you can. We have to have a place where we can advance further with the lectures, otherwise we would have to start again anew each year. Today we will examine something that again apparently is worlds away from preceding lectures, but which will connect with the whole context of this year's studies. I would like to pick up on a remark in one of the recent public lectures, the one on superstition from a spiritual scientific perspective. There I made a comment that cannot be further developed in a public lecture, since background knowledge is required to delve more deeply into it. Such knowledge draws not so much on intellectual acuity as on a capacity for insight founded on our whole constitution of soul which we can acquire through long years of involvement in anthroposophical branch life. It is only through such patient labors that we can succeed in regarding as possible and probable what we would previously have dismissed as absurd by taking it with us into our lives and seeing to what extent it holds true. The remark I would like to start from was this. It is a common fact and not a superstition that in certain illnesses, such as pneumonia, the seventh day of illness represents a crisis. This invariably occurs on the seventh day and is the point where a patient may die and when the physician must take great pains to help him survive the crisis. Every sensible physician acknowledges this, but physicians cannot study the causes of it since They have no idea of underlying spiritual realities. Let us first establish the fact that something remarkable occurs here and is connected with the mysterious number seven. We need to study the human being in a way that offers us insight into this and diverse other realities. You all know, for I have referred to it here on countless occasions, that we can only gain insight into the human being if we understand him to be constituted of four aspects, physical body, ether body, astral body, and I. These four aspects of human nature have the most varied interrelationships and interactions. Every aspect works upon the other and thus they have a whole interpenetrating context. But this interaction is very complex. 
Only very slowly and gradually can we gain insight into these connections and likewise into the way they relate to certain forces, processes and entities in the whole cosmos. By virtue of all the aspects of our being, we exist in a continual and likewise very important alternating connection with the cosmos. What we perceive as physical body, ether body, and so forth, is interconnected, but at the same time connected with the cosmos too, with the whole world that spreads out around us. You see, what we contain within us is also, in a sense, outside us, and so we will best perceive these inner and outer relationships if we observe the human being in the two states of sleeping and waking. When we see a person sleep, we have the physical and ether bodies lying in the bed, and outside these two, in a sense, are the astral body and the eye. However, this is somewhat inaccurate. A certain lack of precision will suffice for many things, but today let us examine these realities more carefully. The astral body and the eye are, then, initially not active within the body. The physical body, with its nervous and vascular system, and the ether body cannot, however, exist at all unless imbued by an astral body and some form of eye configuration. The ether body, too, could not exist without higher beings imbuing it. The moment we rise out with our own astral body and eye, a replacement is needed to accomplish the activities of these two aspects of human nature. The human body cannot lie there without having an eye and astral body active within it, so that when asleep too, we still need an active astral body and eye. But to be accurate, we ought to put it like this. The eye and the astral body active in a person's sleeping physical body are also present during the day, but then their activity is undermined by his own astral body and eye, whose activity renders that of the other higher beings null and void. If we try to picture the eye as it lives in us today, in a waking state, we can say that this human eye dwells within the human body while we are awake. And during this time, its activity removes its sphere of action from an all-encompassing universal I, capital. What does this restricted I of ours actually do during sleep? It is really fairly accurate to say that having emancipated itself during the day from the great universal I, and having lived in the human body by its own devices, it is immersed during the night in the universal eye and gives itself up to its own intrinsic activity. It is precisely by virtue of this immersion, the sinking of the day eye into the universal eye, that the universal eye can work unhindered and can sweep away the substances of tiredness accumulated by the day eye. The full compass of the night I becomes possible through the immersion and submersion of the day I in the universal I. If you wish to conceive this pictorially, you can see this relationship between the day I and the night I 
as if the former described a circle whose larger portion represents the time spent outside the great eye, in which it is only submerged during the night. It may be outside for sixteen hours, for instance, and immersed in the night eye for eight hours. You will only properly understand this if you attend seriously to what I have just said, that your eye never remains the same during the sixteen hours. If we assume this to be the normal waking period, and that during this time the eye undergoes continual changes, and it describes one part of a circle, then is submerged and also undergoes changes during the night of which people are ordinarily unaware. These changes pass increasingly into the unconscious until a culmination is reached, and then the eye slowly becomes more conscious again. In the course of twenty-four hours, therefore, the human eye continually undergoes certain changes like a clock hand describing a circle, and from time to time submerging itself in the great universal eye. Our astral body also undergoes changes in a very similar way. The astral body alters in a way that can also be symbolically conceived as a circle. In the astral body, likewise, the changes are such that we must, in a sense, speak of submersion in a universal astral body. Nowadays, though, people no longer notice this submersion in a universal astral body. In former times, they certainly did notice it. In those days, you can say that people felt an alternation between their own deeply intrinsic astral feelings at one moment and quite different feelings at another. At one point a person experienced the outer surrounding world more vividly. At another, by contrast, he felt his own inner life more strongly. People were therefore able to perceive very different nuances in the astral body's mode of feeling. This is because the astral body undergoes rhythmic alternations in the course of seven days, thus seven times twenty-four hours. which can again be compared with a circular motion. Just as the eye undergoes rhythmic changes in a period of twenty-four hours, still expressed today in the alternation between sleeping and waking, so the astral body does this in seven times twenty-four hours. Such rhythmic changes occurred in a very vital way in primeval human beings. Thus rhythmic alternations occur in the astral body over the course of seven days, and from the eighth day onward the rhythm repeats. During part of the rhythmic periodicity, the astral body indeed immerses itself in a general universal astral body. The rest of the time it remains more outside this universal astral body. This can give you a sense of what appears in us as general astral body and general eye while we are asleep. Let me read that again. This can give you a sense that what appears in us as general astral body and general eye while we are asleep has great importance for our life. The eye in which we immerse ourselves in sleep, which keeps our blood pulsing at night, is the same as that which works in our body during sleep. 
If we sleep during the day, too, we immerse ourselves in this general eye, thus introducing a certain irregularity into our rhythm, which would have had a destructive effect in former times. Today it is no longer so destructive, since in this respect human life has significantly altered in our own times. During a seven-day period, the human astral body really is submerged in the same part of the general universal astral body that penetrates the physical body and ether body during sleep. Inner feelings and emotions change in consequence. Today, scarcely any attention is paid to this, whereas formerly it simply could not be ignored. However, besides the eye and the astral body, the ether body also undergoes quite specific rhythmic changes. Symbolically speaking, the human ether body turns on its axis once in four times seven days, returning to the same processes after this period as on the first day of the cycle. A quite specific rhythm occurs here in four times seven days. And we enter a realm here that we would need to speak about in more detail to make it all comprehensible. You will recall me saying that the man's ether body is female, while the woman's is male. The rhythm is not the same for a male and female ether body, but we will not go into this today. I would just like to stress the fact that such a rhythm occurs, and approximately, because of the difference between man and woman, does so in four times seven days. This is not all, though. Quite specific processes also recur rhythmically in the physical body, however improbable this may seem to people today. Nowadays they have almost entirely faded since we ought to become independent of certain processes, but the clairvoyant observer can detect them. If the physical body were left entirely to its own devices, this rhythm would unfold in ten times seven times four, two hundred and eighty days in the woman, and twelve times seven times four, three hundred and thirty-six days in the man. This would happen if we were given over entirely to the intrinsic laws of our rhythms. It used to be so but we have grown freer from surrounding cosmic influences. Thus we have processes that recur rhythmically in the four aspects of the human being. Each of the rhythms can be pictured, if you like, as a cycle. Today, of course, the rhythm we would accomplish in our physical body, if it were left entirely to its own devices, only approximately coincides with purely spatial external physical processes corresponding to this rhythm. These relationships to the cosmos have altered due to compression of our organism in a way that furthers human freedom. The number 10 times 7 times 4 or 12 times 7 times 4 will have shown you that the rhythm of the physical body relates roughly to the cycle of the year. You can understand these changes to the outward physical body in symbolic form. If you picture a person revolving during the course of a year and being on the near side of the sun at one point and on the far side at another. If we conceive him as always looking with his face toward the sun, 
he will revolve once around himself and once around the sun during the course of a year. Someone who considers this in a solely external way will regard it as a matter of complete indifference, but it is actually very important. The rhythm occurring here in the four bodies was implanted in us over long, long ages, and the fact that the different bodies can mutually affect each other was ordained by the hierarchies of beings of whom we have often spoken. We know that we are embedded in higher beings. The workings of these spiritual beings whose deeds penetrate physical and spiritual space engendered these specific relationships. But in considering what has been said now, you approach from a different perspective an idea that we often touched on last winter. The rhythm of the physical body began to be established on old Saturn. Incorporation of the ether body in such a way as to harmonize the rhythms of etheric body and physical body, originates in the engendering of this rhythm by other spirits, the sun spirits. The interplay of these different rhythms gives rise to a relationship in the same way that the relationship between the two hands of a clock is determined by their rhythm. On old moon a further rhythm was incorporated, that of the astral body. Now, the spirits who ordained and coordinated our whole cosmos for all physical reality is an expression of these beings, were obliged to configure external physical movement in correspondence with their inner nature. The fact that the earth orbits the sun once during a year originates in the rhythm implanted in the physical body long before this physical constellation existed. The spatial nature of these heavenly spheres was determined by spiritual realities. The moon orbits the earth in four times seven days because its cycle is intended to correspond to the cycle of the human etheric body, whose rhythm was to find expression in the moon's movement. The changing illumination of the moon by the sun, the four quarters of the moon, corresponds to the different rhythms of the astral body, while the daily revolving of the earth corresponds to the rhythm of the eye. Precisely in the rhythm of the eye we can discover something that all spiritual science has always taught, yet will strike modern humans as dreams and fantasy, but is nevertheless true. In primeval times the earth did not turn on its axis. This axial rotation only arose over time. When humanity was still in a different condition on earth, this motion did not yet exist. It was not the earth that was first stimulated to rotate, but the human being himself. The spirits to whom the human being is subject stimulated the eye to rotate, and the human eye then, in fact, took this earth with it and rotated it around itself. The earth's rotation results from the eye rhythm. However astonishing this sounds, it is still true. First the human being's spiritual aspects developing toward the eye had to receive the impetus to rotate, 
and then they took the earth with them. Later this changed, of course. The human being became free on earth, and conditions altered such that the human being became free of surrounding cosmic powers. But this is how he was originally. So you see how all physical reality around us is really an emanation of spirit. The spirit is the prima mobile, and from it flow all conditions and spatial relationships in the world. And now consider the astral body for a moment. In the course of seven days, you can say that it accomplishes a cycle. Consider how diseases are connected with certain irregularities of the astral body and that they arise when some such irregularity reverberates through the ether body and reaches the physical body. Now, let us assume that the astral body has some intrinsic defect. Through this defect, it works upon the ether body, and thus the defect is replicated and carried through into the physical body. Then the latter also becomes defective, and the organism begins to revolt against the defect, activating defensive forces. Fever is the most common form of revolt and invokes our healing powers. Fever is not illness, but a state in which we summon all the powers that exist everywhere in our organism to remedy this defect. This revolt of the whole organism against the defect is usually expressed in fever, Fever is the most beneficial, most healing factor in disease. The part of the body that has become defective cannot heal itself and needs to be aided by powers originating elsewhere, and this comes to expression in fever. Now, picture a fever accompanying pneumonia. Something or other has harmed the lungs. Particularly when the human lungs suffer harm of some kind, the astral body is implicated as the original sufferer of harm. This defect then passes through the ether body and is transmitted to the physical body. The original cause of pneumonia always lies in the astral body and there is no other way in which this disease arises. Now consider the rhythm of the astral body. On the day when pneumonia appears, the astral body works upon the physical body. The body starts to revolt in the form of fever. After seven days, the astral body and ether body are, once again, in the same reciprocal position, so that parts of each encounter one another again. But the astral body does not meet the same part of the ether body, since in the meantime the latter has undergone its own rhythm. Instead, the astral body meets a subsequent part of it, which it in turn affects and influences. And in fact, this other part of the ether body is affected in an opposite way. Now the fever is suppressed. Since the part of the astral body that coincided seven days ago with the preceding quarter of the ether body now coincides with its next quarter, the opposite process to what occurred seven days ago is induced, that is, the reaction to the fever. The opposite rhythm of the body suppresses the fever again. You see, the human body exists in order to be healthy, and this is the purpose of rhythm. In the first seven days, certain effects surface, 
and in the following seven days they must lapse. When we are healthy, there is an alternation between this rising and falling rhythm. But when we are ill, suppression of fever represents a life-threatening danger. Whereas in healthy people a rising process is reversed on the seventh day, this rising process needs to be maintained in a sick person. But the vehement rise against a vehement fall, and this is what causes the crisis on the seventh day of pneumonia. We can understand this if we consider that the lungs formed at a time when the moon had already separated from the earth and was preparing to develop its rhythm, and when our day rhythm was also starting to develop. This is why the lungs today are still connected with the astral body and the rhythm of the ether body. Thus you see how spiritual science can illumine abnormal conditions in human life and how the whole nature of the human being can be recognized if we grasp these connections. This is why the sciences will only become productive again if people engage fully with the great discoveries of spiritual science. In former times, roughly up to the middle of our evolution on earth, all human rhythms were in much greater harmony with the external rhythms of nature. Since then, that is, since the middle of the Atlantean period, everything has shifted and become transposed. Our inner nature has emancipated itself from external rhythms. Within, we have retained our old rhythm. Precisely through the lack of accord between rhythms, we have acquired independence and freedom. Otherwise, the development toward freedom would not have been possible in humanity's history. The human rhythm has overtaken that of the sun or of the earth as it relates to the sun. Something similar is true of the other rhythms. For instance, that of the astral body. In former times, the human being experienced very diverse nuances of mood through the seven-day cycle. For some of the time, everything external made a great impression on him, while for another period he lived more inwardly. Since these rhythms no longer accord with each other today, states of inner experience are retained during the period when a person takes more pleasure in the external world and vice versa. They become intermeshed and balance each other out. And the astral body, you can say, becomes well-tempered in consequence, in the musical sense. In people who live more in their astral body, subtle observation can allow us to perceive such fluctuations of mood or sentiment. In the case of people suffering from mental illness, we can identify differences in the astral body's states. The rhythm of the eye arose latest, and here too things shift and become interfused. We can, of course, sleep during the day and be awake at night, but in former times this rhythm always accorded with the external one. In Atlantis it would have been very harmful if human beings had tried to sleep during the day and be awake at night. This would have caused havoc in their lives. Today the rhythm has been retained to some extent but has emancipated itself from the external one. It is just like setting an accurate clock precisely to solar time. You can then read off solar hours precisely. 
But now imagine that at seven in the evening you set the clock to twelve. The sun's rhythm will be correctly retained, but will be shifted in relation to the sun. The same is true of us. The ancient rhythm in which we were previously connected with the cosmos has been retained, but has shifted or been transposed. If the clock were a living being, it would be right for it to extricate its rhythm from surrounding rhythms. In a far distant future, we must reach the point in our inner evolution of again allowing our rhythm to flow into the world's external reality. Just as there were once beings whose rhythms gave rise to the emergence from them of the movements of sun, moon, and earth, so eventually we will transpose our rhythm back into the world once we have attained the stage of divine being. This is the purpose of emancipation from rhythms around us. And here too we can sense the deeper foundations of astrology. But this is not our theme now. Today we just wish to demonstrate that spiritual science is not a sum of abstract ideas for someone egotistically preoccupied with them, but that it will shine a light into the most mundane realities of everyday life. But then we have to have the will to pass from external phenomena to underlying primary foundations. Rhythm was implanted in matter by the Spirit. Today we bear rhythm in us as the legacy of our spiritual origins. However, we can only gain insight into the significance of this rhythm for us and also for other natural creatures if we trace it back to primeval conditions. In animals, we already find very different interrelationships of the separate aspects physical body, ether body, astral body, and group I. A different rhythm holds good in every species. It is more or less the same for the physical body, but quite distinct rhythms unfold in the ether and astral bodies of the various animals. In a way similar to external categories based on morphology, we can classify animal species according to these different rhythms depending on how the rhythm of the astral body relates to that of the ether body. Do not imagine that these rhythms have never been clearly acknowledged. We will be able to show that it is not all that long ago that people had at least a dim awareness of them. Those observant of such things can find calendars used in rural areas with rules for certain relationships between beasts and the land. In former times, a farmer would organize his whole agricultural work in adherence to such rules. And an awareness of such rhythms was spun as a hidden strand into agricultural know-how. Such things can show us that an age of abstraction, of external science, has arisen since the 15th and 16th centuries, a science whose proponents are no longer able to go to the root of things. This is particularly true in medicine. All we have left here is a kind of fumbling, while the real roots of pathology and therapy delve back into very ancient times. I experienced a martyrdom of the intellect and feelings when phenacetin was tried out. This kind of empirical trial with no guiding idea shows the loss of the spirit has also deprived science of real seriousness. 
We must acquire this seriousness again through spiritual insight. We must certainly learn to distinguish where science presents distorted pictures or where it offers knowledge founded on the spirit. If we inscribe into this Excuse me, if we inscribe this into our soul, we will see how necessary spiritual scientific insight is and how it must penetrate all areas of study and life. Uh, readers aside, the word phenacetin is spelled P-H-E-N-A-C-E-T-I-N. End of readers aside, and that is the end of lecture 11.